let's come now to God's Word, uh, which is why we're here, uh, to learn from Him. And just before we do, let's just bow our heads in a moment's silence, and I'll just pray for us. Our God and our Father, Lord, we come before you this morning humbly, desiring to hear your voice speak, desiring to learn from your word and to grow by it. And Lord, I pray this morning, especially as we try to look in at the cross again more closely, that you'd really reveal something of your beauty, your majesty, your holiness and your righteousness, so that we learn more of you, so that we can connect and relate more to you but that we, in one sense, Lord, learn to fear you more. So I pray, Lord, as we run through this today, you would do that work in us, that we might be changed a little bit more into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus, amen. Well, we're back in our series um, for the character of the cross. You remember Pastor Wayne Sutton's series from Crubbers Christian Centre in Edinburgh? And it's good to be back into it. Today's um, sermon isn't one of Wayne's, it's one of mine, so it's a little bit different, uh, but it's still part of the same series. I hope, though, that this series has drawn you closer to Christ, has in some way allowed you to see and savour Christ, maybe anew, maybe for some of us for the first time. And I hope that it's encouraging to you, hope that it develops a deeper understanding of the cross of Christ, of the gospel. Hopefully we can plumb the depths of what Paul calls the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what this series is about, is to expose and reveal the character of Christ, really, the character of God on the cross. And when we say the cross, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring glory to the Father. And sometimes we call that good news. And I hope today you're able to see and understand why that might be good news. And perhaps if you're not a Christian, you might hear for the first time just how amazing God is and how much he loves you and yearns to have you know him. Remember the character of the cross is about making sure that we get the gospel settled in our minds, articulated in our mouths, and expressed in our lives. And one other way of saying that is we need to know what the gospel is. We need to really know what it is. We need to be able to tell what it is, and we need to be able to live what it is. There's no point in getting all the knowledge right and somehow not being able to articulate clearly and fairly and honestly what the gospel is. There's no point in being able to do both of those things and not being able to express it fairly and lovingly in our lives. So I'm hopeful that as we study today's character of the cross, uh, we might learn a little bit more about how to do that. So, so far we've covered off forgiveness. Hopefully you can remember these. Forgiveness, love, and then grace, mercy, and peace. And today's character of the cross is the character of the cross in righteousness, in righteousness, in holiness, in justice. It seems to me today that people have absolutely no idea uh, 
what the word righteous or righteousness really means. There seem to be so many misunderstandings about things in the church and misunderstandings between people. You, we have phrases in our language about, you know, that was just a little misunderstanding between so and so and so and so. And the world is very much misunderstood when it comes to knowing who Christ is and who the cross, what the cross is and what it's doing for us. But the greatest and the gravest misunderstanding is getting that wrong. If we misunderstand who Christ is and what he's doing, who God is and what he's doing, then we have a fate that is not good. Paul has told us in Romans 1 specifically that the gospel, the message of the cross, reveals something, reveals something of God's character. In verse one, in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save those who believe, the Jew first, but also the Greek. And then he says something very profound. He says, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And so we hear there that the gospel reveals, it shows, it demonstrates, another word might be it manifests, God's righteousness. So if we want to really see something of God's righteousness, we need to look at the cross. We need to understand what's really going on there. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I have the opportunity to evangelize to people that know nothing about Christ, when I've finished, I often hear the same refrain, the same comment from people. And it goes something like this. Well, if your God is so loving and so good and so kind and gracious, then I've got nothing to worry about because he'll just forgive me. He won't hold anything I've done to account and basically I'm pretty good anyway. And that is a very, very, very serious misunderstanding. It's a grave misunderstanding because it doesn't consider the genuine human condition. And it's preposterous to think that God won't judge mankind for his sin. But at its base, it misunderstands who God really is and what God is really like. Simply put, God is righteous. God is justice. And you and I are not in the least bit righteous. Although we might do good things, we're not righteous and we will be judged by God. So to begin then, we need to explain what the word righteous means, righteousness means. And like all words, we have to go back to its root and try and move forward and understand it. And I found this very interesting when I had a little look at this. Let's break it down a little bit. If we're going to understand righteousness, we need to understand what righteous means. And fundamentally, righteous means morally good, but in a judicial sense, in a legal sense, not just good, morally good, in the light of a law, 
It's about justice then, isn't it? And in the Greek, it's interchangeable between righteousness and being just, justified, justice. They're all, they all have the same root. And in some of the, the versions that maybe some of you are reading, you'll see um, from what I'm reading in the ESV, you might see the word just comes in, or the word justice comes in, and in yours it might be rendered righteousness. And that's because they're often the same, have the same root and have the same meaning. They're kind of interchangeable. To be righteous is a character of God. It's a characteristic of God. It's a goodness, a moral goodness, legally, of God. And that's one way of characterizing who he is and what he is. He's righteous. But we also need to understand the meaning of the word righteousness. If we understand the word righteous as being a character-defining word, then we need to know that righteousness defines the extent of that character, the extent of God's righteousness. How righteous is God? That is the question. And that's what this um, verse in Romans, Romans 3, is uh, going to try and explain to us. What's the extent of God's holiness? So, for example, if I give a quick example, if I say to you um, that I'm deaf, um, which I'm not, not yet, um, and my doctor says um, Sam's deafness is um, profound, then we're talking about that same kind of thing. One describes a characteristic of me, I'm deaf, and the doctor is describing the extent of my deafness. And so we sort of think of it in those terms. God is righteous, and what is the extent of his righteousness? The Bible is very clear that God is righteous. I don't think anyone really argues with that. But there are over 700 references just to righteousness, uh, referring to God. And there are more just using the word righteous. <coughs> Excuse me. It's all the way through the Bible. We heard it earlier in Psalm 97 as it was read this morning. But I hear a few more from the word just to kind of whet your appetite. Psalm 119, one, verse 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright in your judgments. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work, is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright, is he. Psalm 48 verse 10, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. That's a lovely expression. God's right hand is full of righteousness. And Jeremiah 12 verse 1, he says, the prophet says, righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. So some examples from the word, just speaking about the glory, if you will, of God's righteousness. And throughout history, God's righteousness has been expressed in a general way, but also in a specific way. It's been there right from the beginning, right before God even created the world. God is in perfect union with himself, there's three persons and one being reigning in righteousness, celebrating 
the righteousness that God is. But then God creates the world and righteousness exists in the creation. It's expressed by saying, and God saw that it was good. The end of the first day, the second day, and so on. And at the end of that sequence, he says, God saw that it was very good. Something that is good, it is moral, it is perfect, it is just, before there was any sin in the world. And then he gave the law in the garden. You can eat of any tree, but you shall not eat of that one. For the day that you eat of that one, you shall surely die. There's a law, there's a statement. God pronounces his righteousness in the fall. There's a sense of justice. He judges Adam and Eve. There's a, a picture of righteousness in the ark with Noah, with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him, with Abraham and his son Isaac when he goes to sacrifice him in obedience. There's God's righteousness in the exodus from Egypt, in the wilderness experience, in the tabernacle, in the giving of the law. Those Ten Commandments are righteous. They are holy. There's righteousness in the picture of the judges and the way that they behave and perform in the prophets and in the kings and on and on and on and on throughout scripture. It portrays, displays and clearly articulates that God is righteous. But in the event of the cross, God's righteousness sort of takes a, a new dynamic. He's still the same righteous God but the way that it's expressed is quite different. People have said things like this, God's righteousness meets its fullness in the cross. It's completeness and it's the place where God vindicates his character. He vindicates his righteousness in the cross. So we do want to know more about it. Fortunately, it's been revealed. That's what the cross is. So we ought to take a close look at it. So let's examine the text together. Uh, hopefully you've got your Bibles. If you haven't, go get them. Open them up. You're going to need to look into the text with me. Otherwise, how do you know I'm not making this all up? So we're jumping down into Romans chapter 3 from verses 19 following. And if you can, read along with me as we go through it. I've just got, as you might guess, three points. Um, the first couple are fairly easy, I think, and the third one is a little bit of a, a curved ball, but is very, very important. So our first point then is God's righteous law condemns a sinful world. God's righteous law condemns a sinful word. Just read along with me, verse 19, chapter 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, the first thing I want us to note in this text is simply that the law speaks. It's not silent. It's not some arbitrary thought about goodness. It says something. It says something. And it says them to the people that are under the law. Now, just in case you don't think that's you, we're all under the law. Nobody except God is above the law. And the reason that God is above the law is that he's the source. His character is the source of the law. 
And so as he speaks the law into existence, it's truth and it's legally binding in that sense. So it speaks to us who are under it. Weirdly, it says so that every mouth may be stopped. So the law of God speaks to prevent us from speaking. And why would we want to speak when we see or hear the law? Well, the first thing that we'd want to say is, well, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm a good person. But if we truly listen to what the law is saying, it's actually saying the opposite to me. It's saying, actually, you're not a good person. Here's my law, says God. How do you measure up? What do you look like compared to it? So it speaks, I'm under the law, you're under the law, my mouth is stopped, I can give no justification to God for my sin because in trying to obey that law, I find that I can't keep it. So we're in trouble. Look at verse 23, jump down a bit. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we will look at glory at some point uh, as one of the characteristics of the cross. In fact, it's the main character of the cross. It's the one that pulls all these other characteristics of God together and gives us the real reason for the, for the cross. But just note, everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of his glory. It doesn't say his law there. It says his character, his beauty, his majesty, which includes righteousness. So we're without excuse, without an ability to argue that we're actually not that bad, because we really are. So my point to you today is listen to the law. Listen and hear God's holiness in the law. And close your mouth. Meditate on that. Consider what it means to God to prescribe a law and to have the world rail against it. It proves that I'm anything but just or righteous. Now I was trying to think of an analogy to demonstrate this because as, as the Bible talks about God's righteousness, it also talks about our lack of righteousness. The two kind of poles around holiness. God is holy, I'm not. And I came up with one. I don't know how good it is, but we'll go through it anyway. I was thinking if I wanted to present my uh, righteous deeds to God, how would I do that? And I thought one way of doing that would be to just simply write out the good righteous deeds that I do. For me, it wouldn't necessarily be a particularly long list, but just imagine for a second that every day I write out the good things that I do on a bit of paper. And after a little while, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, have a bit of a, a wad of paper. And after a few years, a bit more, and so on. And after a while, I say to myself, I need some kind of receptacle, some kind of holding thing to keep all of these wonderful deeds that I've done of righteousness together. And so I go to the thing that everyone should go to when you're trying to collect these sorts of things, the wheelie bin. And I put my righteous deeds written on paper into the wheelie bin. And after several years, that wheelie bin starts to fill up. Until finally, 
my receptacle for all my righteous deeds is full and it's really heaven, really heavy. And so I decide my death that I'm going to take this wheelie bin, I'm going to wheel the wheelie bin into heaven with me. It's a great big heavy bulk of my righteous deeds. And just before I get into heaven, an angel stops me um, and says, what are you doing? Nice wheelie bin, by the way. What are you doing here? What's this all about? And I say, oh, well, this is my wheelie bin and uh, it's got all my righteous deeds in and I just want to present it to God to uh, make sure that I've really made him happy and pleased him and satisfied his law. And the angel says to me, come over here a minute. And he stands me next to a skyscraper and he says, look up. Look up to the top of this skyscraper with me. And I look up and I cannot see the top because it goes through the clouds. And I say to the angel, well, how high is that skyscraper? And he says, it has no end. It is infinite. And this is the righteousness of God. What are you going to do with your wheelie bin now? A wheelie bin is only useful for rubbish. The Bible says that our righteousness, in fact it says all of our righteousness, is filthy rags. Something that's only useful to be thrown away in a bin. What do we bring to God that pleases him out of the works that we do, that can prove the law is attainable, nothing at all. The law, what it does is it demonstrates that we can't keep the law and therefore we are unrighteous. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that's in God's sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Paul says elsewhere that uh, when the law didn't exist, he didn't know sin. But when the law came into existence, he's speaking metaphorically in terms of his own understanding, sin, seizing every opportunity in him, caused him to covet, caused him to sin. That's what the law does. It brings the knowledge that I'm to get through this, if I'm going to get through this life, I need some righteousness from somewhere else. I can't manufacture it myself. My bin is full of dead deeds that do nothing. The question then is, where am I going to get this righteousness from? Am I going to go to Coles and get it? That's not going to work. Am I going to go online? Am I going to pay for it? Am I going to go to movies and try and find some great emotional dynamic that will somehow make me righteous? Well, none of that is going to work. So point number one then, <clears throat> God's righteous law condemns a sinful world. Point number two, God's righteousness is given to a sinful world. God's righteousness is given to a sinful world. Verse 21, so in contrast to the law and everything that's happened there, Paul then says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although 
the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now, something else has come into the picture and this is where the cross starts to get introduced. God's righteousness has appeared separate to the law. The law is over here. It fundamentally condemns us. And over here, a picture of of righteousness has come out that's separate to that, although it's a response to that. The law talks of it. It talks of the fullness of righteousness and the prophets also talk to it. Christ is coming into the world, God's one and only true righteousness. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction, as we read earlier. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the law, as we know, doesn't produce righteousness in us. It condemns us. But fortunately, God provides the righteousness we need to avoid judgment from God. That's absolutely crazy. It sort of almost makes no sense at all. God gives us a law, a picture of his righteousness. It condemns mankind. So we're going to be judged and ultimately we're going to go to hell, which, by the way, is a picture of God's righteousness. Hell doesn't exist without God's righteousness. And we can't attain to this law. And over here, God says, well, I'm going to give you my righteousness. You see, we can't get a righteousness of our own And God says, I'll give you mine. Everyone's fallen. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. This is completely bonkers. What an amazing God that would set up a law that would demonstrate to us that we're nothing like God and then give us his righteousness to protect us from the law. It's it's staggering. Where do we get that righteousness from specifically? from Jesus through faith by believing in him and trusting that his work on the cross was sufficient to pay for my sins under the law. Verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, you can't earn it You can't buy it. You can't dig it out of the ground. It's a gift. We've got to get this right. Even sometimes we understand grace. We go on and and still sort of try and earn our salvation. We do need to do good works. There's no question about that. We do it out of love, not for merit or for attaining anything from God. It's a gift. It's grace. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. And by the way, it's free. It's free. This is one of the bizarre things about trying to evangelize. When you get to the point of telling them it's a free gift, they almost just don't want it because they feel like they should somehow be earning it. We need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. It's free. We're not actually righteous, though, when God gives us his righteousness. I want to be very, very clear about this. We don't suddenly become righteous. Now, you know that. You know that in your own life. I know that in my life, we're still sinners. And hopefully, we're striving to be 
uh, or to obey God's commands and to attempt uh, to bring him glory by uh, living in a manner worthy of the calling by which he's called us by the gospel. But the truth is we're still rotten sinners. The Bible teaches, if you go on into chapter 4, you'll learn this when Paul talks about Abraham, that we're declared righteous. When we put our trust in Christ, when we desire to follow him, believe in him and trust in the promises that he gives us through the cross, then we're declared righteous. God knows that we're still sinners, but he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. It, it's something that clothes us. Yesterday morning I went for a walk with Rick, uh, quite a stout, fairly early morning walk. And uh, Rick was talking about uh, Ephesians 6, where we put on the full armour of God. And we were both kind of getting excited about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and everything else. One of the things that really stood out to me was the breastplate of righteousness. That's a picture of being declared righteous. You know, the breastplate of righteousness kind of covers our front and it protects us from the onslaught of God's wrath. Behind the breastplate of righteousness is still me, still the rotten sinner that I am. But it's the breastplate of righteousness that God has given me that protects me from the wrath of God because God's wrath has been used to judge Jesus in my place. I've got to believe, I've got to trust the finished work of Christ on the cross to get that breastplate of righteousness. So point number one, God's righteous law condemns a sinful world. God's righteousness is given to a sinful world. And lastly, point number three, God's righteousness upholds his righteous character. Did you hear that? God's righteousness actually is the thing that vindicates his character, that proves and reveals to the world that he is righteous. Put another way, if God does not fulfill his righteous law by exacting the due penalty and judgment for sin, then God is actually no more righteous than you and me. And that's where the person who says, if your God is loving and good, I know I'll be fine because I've not done that many those many things that are wrong, misunderstands who God is. If God did that, he would be unrighteous. And he's saying, I am righteous. I am righteous. And I'm going to prove it in one sense in the cross. God's righteousness upholds his very righteous character. Let's look at the text again together. Verse 23, we've read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's just pause there for a second. What is redemption? Well, redemption is quite simply a purchasing back, a buying back, a relieving out of captivity. You redeem a slave. You redeem something you took to a, to a shop to sell if you get to buy it back. So there's a picture in this cross of Christ and God the Father redeeming us as sinners in 
Christ Jesus. This redemption is in him. It's nowhere else. It's not in Buddha. It's not in Karl Marx. It's, not, it's nowhere else. None of those things will deal with the problem of sin. Only Christ does, and only Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Take a look at Galatians 3 at some point. Christ does that by becoming the curse instead of us getting the curse. It's quite staggering. Verse 25. So it's referring to Jesus now, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. So Paul is saying that Jesus Christ in him and in his work on the cross redeems us. He buys us back out of being enslaved to sin and from the penalty and judgment. And then it says God put Jesus forward as an offering. Uh, here the word is propitiation. That means payment. Sometimes we use the word atonement, but it's the payment for the result of the penalty of the law. So redemption exists in Christ Jesus. God puts Jesus forward to pay the price and satisfy him, the Father, for the law. This is a tricky uh, concept, but the law has a penalty. When we break the law, there is a penalty. If we get caught speeding as a small example of that, there is a penalty, there is a fine, and it needs to be paid. Well, in the big law, God's law, man has rebelled on every count. Our very nature is a rebellion to God. Our very nature is sinful, and that means that law must be paid. So God puts Christ Jesus forward as the thing that will pay for it the thing that will satisfy the law and please the Father, because he must have it satisfied. The question is, how does Jesus pay for it? God puts him forward. Well, it's in the text, back at verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The satisfaction of the law, the propitiation that God puts forward in Christ is his life. When it says by his blood, it literally means by him in his death. The, the, the reference to blood is, is Christ's life, and Christ gives that up, of course. So it works by Christ dying on the cross. So let's just back up a second. We're condemned under the law. The law is righteous, it is holy. We are condemned under it. We have to stop our mouths and be silent because we're all going to be accountable to God. So we need righteousness from somewhere. We're aware now that we can't get this righteousness ourselves. We can't work hard at it. So we're going to have to get it from somewhere else. And that place is God. And God gives us his righteousness. And we spoke about how crazy that is. And Christ is the offering that makes it work. He's the key that turns the lock, that opens the door to forgiveness. But God the Father is the one that puts him forward. He gives up his life. Now that's the how. That's the how it works. The question is, why did God do it that way? Why? Why, why couldn't you... Do it some other way. Why does it need to be the cross? Why does it need to be the penalty for sin? 
why couldn't you just wipe the slate clean and we all just start again and try a little bit harder? Well, this is where the real curved ball comes in in this passage. Verse 23b, the second half of verse 23, Paul says this, referring to Christ being offered as the sacrifice for the redemption of sins and, and his life uh, being passed up. Paul says this was to show God's righteousness. The cross is to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Christ died to show God's righteousness. Why? Because for all these years, for thousands of years, since the fall, God had waited patiently, letting his law enact truth in the world and watching people sin against him again and again and again. Read Hebrews 11. See the, the catalogue of men and women of faith. When men and women who trusted God and yet were terrible people. Some worse than others, I grant you. But generally they're all pretty bad. And yet they're men and women of faith. And God passed over their sin at that point. He didn't judge them because he wanted to display to the world at the right time that he was just, that he would judge sin. And he judges it in his son. Now, if God hadn't have done that, then again, we'd have to say that he wasn't righteous. He claimed that there was a law. We tried to live under it. We were found wanting. Well, he never judged us. What kind of a God is that? So God's interest here is to uphold his character, to demonstrate to the world, to reveal to the world what he's really like, who he really is, how much his righteousness matters. And doesn't hold us to account, at least those that come to Christ. There's an honour in this, isn't there? He honours himself. So we can't criticise him. He's true to his word. He patiently waited to let the measure of sin and sinf the sinfulness of our souls mount up. All those years all those souls that were by nature sinful and just sinned. I'm not saying nobody uh, did anything good. We do things that are good, but we're still sinners. And he waited patiently. But at the right time, he fulfilled his nature, if you will. He, he demonstrated he really is actually righteous. He had to deal with it. And in the cause of all of that, he applies his judgment to Jesus instead of you, instead of me. It really is worth thinking about this. It's worth entering into this secret place and seeing this judgment happen.
Think about it this way. Jesus, who was born under the law, wasn't he? He was above the law. He spoke and creation came into being. This is God we're talking about. He was born under the law. He obeys it justly, righteously. He's the only one that could sit under the law and obey it. So Jesus is, is walking righteousness, living, breathing, walking righteousness, obeying the law. He's righteously taken the penalty of the law for our sins. It's actually a righteous act that Jesus is performing. He pleases his Father. Jesus is all about the Father. All about the Father. He's about us, I know that. He cares for his creation, he loves it. He's primarily obeying his Father and bringing glory to his Father. He righteously obeys the law. He righteously takes the penalty of the law for our sins. It's a righteous act. He pleases the Father. He's like saying, come on, Father, let's fulfill the law. Let me drink the cup of your wrath for the sins of the world so that people will see that we are the one true righteous God. There's this explosion of righteousness that happens on the cross. God the Father is righteously bearing down on the cross to judge his Son, to prove and demonstrate and uphold his righteous character. And his Son has come to the cross to be judged by the Father. There's two righteous things going on here. The Spirit of God is at work in all of this. The, the thief on the cross believes. That's the, the work of the Spirit right there. The, the centurion says, truly this is the Son of God. You were saved by this same thing. There's this explosion of righteousness. I just find it so, so profound. Do not misunderstand God's righteousness. Do not be one of those people that minimizes God to a mere man that can say, oh well, it doesn't really matter. He needs to vindicate and uphold his righteousness. God will not be mocked. He's not a small God. He is God. There is nothing bigger. That skyscraper analogy of God's righteousness cuts right through the universe and goes on and on and on. There's no end to God's righteousness, the extent of his righteous character. He will be honored. He will be glorified. One day every knee will bow and make the statement that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just. Did you hear that? God the righteous is satisfied to look on Christ, to look on him and to pardon me. God's righteous law condemns a sinful world. God's righteousness is given to a sinful world. And God's righteousness upholds his righteous character. So in closing, we're a bit out of time here. Sorry, it's been so long. I've tried to condense this over and over again. 
just have a couple of simple questions for us to ponder. The first question is, have you received the gift? Have you received Christ's righteousness? Are you justified? Are you made right with God? Because let me tell you, you need it. You need it. There is no other name under heaven and earth given to man by which you must be saved. That's Peter. Do you hear what he says? You must be saved. You've got to get saved. Your righteousness isn't going to work. Have you been pardoned for your sin? If you haven't, then do it right now. Don't delay. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus today. Well, you might say to me, well, how do I do that, Sam? Well, very simply, a little analogy from John Piper is that you're in your house and it's on fire and you're trying to get out of the house before you burn up. And you're on your hands and knees trying to get to the front door and you finally get to the front door and someone outside the, the door is saying, come on out, come on out. And you reach up, excuse me, you reach up to the handle to touch it, but you can't quite reach it. And so you say, I can't, I can't open the door. Help me, open the door, have mercy. That's how we come to Christ. Not in a false, ambitious way, but in a broken, contrite way, recognizing we are dead under the law. We are condemned. And Christ's righteousness is a free gift that we can accept if we just come to him and ask for mercy. So my prayer is that you will do this today. You won't delay and you'll begin your Christian walk with him. But if you have accepted Christ, and I know many of you have, then would you rejoice with me today? Would you sing to him? Would you fill your lungs and praise him? link arms with one another, at least in a virtual sense, and praise our God, because we were condemned and Christ died for us to bring glory to the Father, to demonstrate true righteousness by fulfilling the law. And he's given us his righteousness. Worship him. Worship him in fear and trembling. Let's pray. Oh, Father, oh, gracious, holy God, we just come before you again, Lord, and we ask that you would show us your righteousness again. If we've seen it before, show it to us again anew. Show us your true and faithful character, Lord. Don't leave us in our sin. Have mercy on us, Lord. Father, I pray that the, the words of your scripture will just dwell in us this week will just resound in us and, and breathe away in us. Your spirit will use them to convict us, to draw us near to you again, or perhaps for some, Lord, for the first time. And that we will all seek mercy in your Son and that we will all find grace, which you give so freely. Father, bless us to this end. Part us now in fear as we go out into the world and help us to serve you in this isolated way as best as we can. We pray all these things in the precious, matchless, righteous name of Christ. Amen. <laughs>